The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or all the people harvesting our food in this heat, in these fires, during this pandemic. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the August 25th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Today, we devote the full hour to my guest, Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor, with his reflections on all the identity politics that has taken place since we discussed his book, The Anger Gap, last January. We'll be right back. back to the show. My guest for the full hour returning to this program is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix. With his focuses on black politics, political behavior, public opinion, political communication, urban politics, and mobilization of marginalized groups, he is the man of the hour for this hour to reflect on all the developments, the inflection point we may be at since Davin and I talked last January with the release of his very well-received book, The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics. Davin is a co-director for the First Generation First Quarter Challenge, a peer mentoring program, is faculty co-founder and co-advisor for the Black Internationalists program preparing UCI's Black students about experiences of Blackness abroad, was a Hellman Fellow, and received the Dean's Honorary for Teaching Excellence Award, the Distinguished Lecture Award from Black Leadership Advance Coalition, and the Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Fostering Undergraduate Research. Davin's media appearances include his June 6, 2020 opinion piece in the New York Times, interviews on KPCC, KCRW, and in print, our weekly, The Daily Beast, and The OC Register. Davin comes to us today from up the hill from me. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Davin Phoenix. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here and converse with you. Thank you. Well, the summer of 2020, as it continues to unfold since your New York Times op-ed piece, in America, the white people's bandwidth is yielding more space to all aspects of racial injustice. What kind of a teachable moment, Devin, would you say that we are at? I think looking at the political landscape, the economic landscape, the health landscape, the racial landscape, which of course are all interrelated, we can carry a couple of meaningful implications and moments the first to highlight is the power and the continued necessity of protest, actions that make people uncomfortable, actions that force the agenda of a marginalized set of peoples onto the national discourse, onto the national stage. These groups coming together, mobilizing in their frustration, mobilizing their anger, mobilizing in their hope that change is indeed possible. 
to say we will not be silenced, we will not be sidelined any longer. Many people have talked about this movement in the U.S. since the death of George Floyd as the largest social movement perhaps in U.S. history. I think it's important for us to remember that this movement has been one that has been pretty persistent and consistent with us, regardless of how much media attention it gets, since the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2013. And so what do we take away from this across very different national political regimes, across some key variations in who is in power and who's in not at state levels or at city levels? We're seeing people continue to take to the streets in marches and demonstrations and protests. And we can think of the legacy of John Lewis, who took to the streets and marches and demonstrations and sit-ins and protests. These matter. These matter for raising attention. They matter for identifying allies and motivating and mobilizing allies to join these lines of protest. It matters for getting government responsiveness, responsiveness that might not have come without these forceful efforts. And so I think we can recognize when we see for the first time in public opinion polls, a majority of white people saying that they support the Black Lives Matter movement, when we see people's awareness about issues like defund the police rising, these aren't new issues, right? But they're issues that are being discussed in a way that they hadn't been discussed, being discussed in circles they hadn't been discussed before. It's really important for us to sit back and recognize the power of protests and putting these issues on the agenda in kind of forcing people to take stands on these issues and for paving the way for actual procedural policy and legal and structural change. You know, when we think about something like defund the police as controversial and contentious as this is, you know, we had an entire primary season in which a number of candidates discussed so many of the issues that were deemed important to the U.S. electorate and not once was the issue of defund the police raised. So I think that's a really important contrast for us to draw between what we were discussing as a polity during the height of the Democratic primary season when we had the endless spate of debates and what we're discussing now. And what's the difference? Well, look at Julian Castro, who was, I think, the only one bringing it up. And well, we'll talk a little bit about the Democratic Convention later, but fleetingly referred to that now, he wasn't even in the Democratic Convention. He was nowhere. Yes, and I think we will talk about that a bit later down the line, so I won't kind of spoil that conversation, but it is important for us to understand just how much protest and kind of movements that challenge the system from outside, they don't fit within the conventional parameters, the conventional bounds of political discourse. And by that, I mean, it's only through protest often that people find themselves able to inject within the conversation mm -hmm. issues that the conventional leaders don't deem worthy of debate space or don't deem worthy of space within a party platform or don't deem worthy within the laundry list of issues that they know they need to check off when having their conventions. So even when entrenched political elites, I won't say entrenched, but people that have held or do hold political office raise these issues, we can see the way in which their voice might be stifled, right? Or they don't have the same platform. So it's really critical on the dawn of a potentially transformative election for us to take stock of what is and is not potentially possible or viable through electoral politics and understand politics as a broader ecosystem. Yes, the vote is critically important. Yes, the decisions made by party leaders and by elected officials are 
profoundly important and impactful, but that is not the entirety of the scope of politics. The scope of politics entails all kinds of groups competing yes. for a seat at the table, competing for the ability to shape or add to or take away from the conversation. And a lot of that political action comes outside of the bounds of campaigns and elections. And I think that's what we're really seeing here. And that's, I think, a really critical takeaway for people that are too often socialized to believe that the entirety of politics takes place at the ballot box. Well, and to your point, folks are reading like they've never read before. So that's part of the bandwidth. It's, take, it's giving way to more discussion of these protests than before. We've talked on other shows about the amazing persistence of these protests in the burbs in Orange County. But I'm also, I want to direct us to the reading list. The bestseller list is a really good indicator of the attention to racism. And then uh, just, I was trying to check out Ijoama Oluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, there are 22 people in the queue in the Newport Library. So uh, there's, there's ways to gauge that the, the salons and the cul-de-sacs, they're now attending to this. It's not a convention floor debate going on. It's in our backyards. It's in our front rooms. It's in our bedrooms. Absolutely. And I think it's also important for us to recognize that there's perhaps a disconnect or a discrepancy between people buying the books or reserving the books or borrowing the books and people actually reading and engaging the books. And then we can think about the important discrepancy between people reading and engaging the books and people acting on the books and changing their practices and changing what they advocate for or what they advocate against based on the knowledge they take away from the books. And so it's really critical for us to understand the cyclical effect of these kinds of processes that we see unfold, right? This is by no means the first instance in which kind of a groundswell of activism has perhaps shifted people's attention, grasped the attention of people that are in a position of comfort and privilege that they have been able to ignore these issues before or these incidents before. It's great for that kind of passion and attentiveness to come. But if that passion and attentiveness was sufficient to bring about the kinds of structural changes that protesters are clamoring for, then we would not have need for these structural changes because we've certainly seen anti-racist books or books about race shoot up to the top of the bestseller charts before. Maybe not to this volume, but certainly before, right? And has that preceded change change in any of the ways we can operationalize it, from change in people's vote behavior to changes in people's willingness to support affordable housing in their neighborhoods, to changes in people determining the kinds of students that are and are not able to go to school with their kids. It's those kinds of actions or the lack thereof that really help us understand whether this movement is leading to a genuine sea change that's going to bear fruit, or if it's going to kind of maybe just punt the ball, right? Push some of these issues off to the future so they kind of simmer again until the next boiling point. So along with that, the bandwidth I'm talking about and teachable moments, how well does a good history education guide your students in political science? Do they, if the better the background, the more they can see that their history was the political science of the past. Is this contributing anymore? Because I'm finding with my own American history, new downloads, 
that there is so much more I'm learning about the 19th Amendment. It's more about Tulsa, more about so many things that have taken place. Is a good history education something that contributes to your students in a political science seminar setting? So in short, yes. And I think that a good history education prepares every student, right? Because we can oh, think yeah. about people even in STEM fields having a fuller appreciation for the history of this country in this world. Can I think better provide context to what's going on? Because like the old proverb says, there's nothing new under the sun. This provides important context, and I think it helps people be more mindful of their place in history. That's something that continues to shape my thinking as a professor in this time of COVID. When our students look back on this time 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, what are they going to remember? And how can I be impactful to them in a way that is needed I can't do that without really having an appreciation for just how distinct this time is. Yes. And I cannot be a good asset and a good service to my students and even to my colleagues, my peers, my family, if I'm not cognizant of just how far from normal these times are. And I do fear that efforts to normalize this can eat away at the sense of urgency for all of us to acknowledge our roles and take up our responsibility and clamoring for needed change. And I won't even get into ideological direction of those changes, but I think it's clear that this extended period in this global pandemic has laid bare the ways in which some of the unchecked inequities between people in this country have exponentially devastating consequences that are not equally felt. And as we think about the essential workers, we can think about the people that work in agriculture in California, right? That are producing food that is placed on dinner tables across the country, how they've been working in excessive heat this past week. In crowded quarters. Without, exactly, right? So they're at increased risk of getting this disease and they have less access to adequate health care, right? And less of the means to be able to reap the fruits of the labor that they're diligently putting out for the rest of the country. To use another example, we can think about how this current slate of wildfires raging in the state, there's challenges in combating it in large part because the disproportionate reliance on prisoners to fight fires. Yes, all right, yeah is coming back to haunt us because those prisoners have been ravaged by the spread of COVID within prisons, right? And they've been so we now, see yeah. there, you know, the interaction of climate change with our mass incarceration, with the lack of infrastructure to support a valuable public service through waged work, right? And of course, the racial and class disparities that are exploded in mass incarceration. So we see these vivid examples that have always been present with us, but the COVID era makes it harder for people in a position of privilege and comfort to ignore these kinds of inequities. We see that need for change, that breaking point. And so for us to recognize our role, I think we need to have a healthy understanding of history. History that helps us understand 
how major change has been possible, who led that change, and who primarily benefited from that change, in addition to who was excluded from the benefits of that change, and also why similar changes or change-led efforts have not been successful. Who was resistant? What were the messages behind the resistance? What agents of the state or groups of people within the polity were mobilized for and against those needed changes? And how were those victories won or how were those losses attained and dealt with? And so I'm not speaking in too much specifics, right? But if we look at history as this kind of repeating cycle of conflicts, right, over the distribution of power and resources, mm -hmm. and we can di diagnose, we have tools that are given to us to diagnose why did this side win in this particular conflict? And what was the context that shaped that battle? Why did this other group win when this similar conflict arose in this context? When I think of history, that's what I think of. And so I note two things in teaching my students that reflect my own experiences in college and grad school, that there was so much history I simply didn't know. I simply right? did not have any exposure to in K through 12. But it's not simply a matter of not knowing that and then learning it, right? So Tulsa, race massacre completely off my radar, right? The completely? move bombing, completely. Seriously? Completely? Okay. Completely off my radar, K-12. The move bombing in Philadelphia, completely off my radar, K-12 and college, right? Just to name a couple of like moments, momentous moments of racial violence. All of these things, right? But it's not simply enough to know these moments and these incidents. What I also had to unlearn was the idea that history unfolded in this automatic predetermined way and so that we learned that basically the story of marginalized groups attaining closer closer greater and greater access to full citizenship it almost is like it kind of just happens as a natural evolution in people's attitudes so i have this learning of history k through 12 that suggests that these irredeemable evils like slavery or Jim Crow or disenfranchisement to wide swaths of the population, that they just kind of run their course. And once the light bulb clicks in enough people's head, they say, oh, we're better than this, right? So that kind of feeds into this very deterministic view of American oh, history in particular much. that very feeds into much. the idea, right, of American right. exceptionalism, right? Oh, well, you know, once we learn better, we got it. It's like, no, no. I need yeah. to understand the conflicts that were fought to extend enfranchisement, right? I need to know the conflicts and not just the civil war, right? All the conflicts that amounted in these abolitionist movements and in these legal cases that are brought to challenge institutions, not just of slavery, but that uphold this institution. I need to understand, right, the conflict and the ways in which people were situated on either sides of these battles and why they won in this instance and they didn't win in the other. If I don't understand that history is one of conflicts and not one of natural evolution, then I'm going to be complacent when history demands the next set of changes and the next set of battles to be fought. So I can't just sit around and wait for the kind of light bulb to go off or to do something about climate change, right? I've got to act now with that sense of urgency. You know, I can't wait for the system to just kind of correct itself and for mass incarceration to no longer exist, right? That's simply not going to happen. We're not going to simply evolve to that point. There's going to be battles that had to be fought, battles that take place across a number of landscapes and fields. Again, from 
the polling place and the ballot box to the streets of protest, right? To the city council meeting, to the school board meeting, to the pages of Twitter and Facebook, right? There's all these fronts in the battle. And so when I think about the role of history, that's what I think about. Do we have a sense of not just what has happened before us, but how, how it, happened it happened so that we can understand what roles we play and how we are advancing any side of the history that the generations that come after us will be reading in their textbooks. If you just joined us, my guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix for the full hour. I'm so glad you brought up about how if there was that inevitability about various developments in history that it absolves us from participating in what's a very messy process in our own time. Absolutely. I, you know, I can't make that point enough as it pertains to my teaching philosophy, that we cannot carry a view that absolves us from our role in creating history in the moment. And we also cannot absolve people in the past, right? I understand there's kind of a, a nuance there, right? Because things do actually change over time. And so to hold people of a past era to the standards of today's era, yeah, there might be some real difficulties and challenges there. But the other extreme is just as thorny and problematic, which is to say, oh, we don't need to hold past eras accountable because they didn't know better. When we have that kind of perspective, it erases the work and the sweat and the sacrifices of people in those eras. Yeah, they did indeed know better, right? Exactly, right? right? You know, the abolitionists and the integrationists and the radicals of those times who said in real time, in the moment, looking at the landscape, no, this is wrong and this is historically wrong and we're going to fight tooth and nail to right this wrong. (sighs) Let's talk then about, we, we mentioned a bit about covid There is, at this recording, August 21st, there is a standoff in the congressional setting to offer relief, which was discontinued last month. There isn't unemployment relief. The evictions are going to take place. Bankruptcies are going to happen. Has been covered many, many ways. It doesn't take away from saying that given the inequality of the dis- disparities of public health care delivery in this country that let's talk about the standstill where we're at this precipice of what well, it's already affecting people but without any of this relief being negotiated it's just been set aside speaking of white privilege that the u.s senate has not engaged the discussion of a fully produced congressional package of relief that covers the infrastructure for the elections, continues unemployment relief, addresses housing, the eviction relief, and that kind of a thing. Where are we going here, Davin? I honestly can't tell you, but I can say that it is distressing and infuriating that we can have Congress as an institutional body that seems to be comprised of if not a vast majority, at least a critical mass and influential plurality of people who are so disconnected from the experiences and vulnerability of everyday people that they can see fit to call recess without reaching any type of agreement to create 
and offer much needed aid for people whose lives have been completely upended by a disastrously mismanaged pandemic. And so just to read the accounts of people, which you really have to mind to find, because I find that these kinds of accounts of everyday people that are literally down to the last dollar in their bank account because of the stress from, you know, not being able to work or being furloughed negative or laid income. off. Yeah. 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 You know, like I can easily imagine a world in which these stories are top news from every major media outlet. And if they're not top news, it's because they're competing with the bald face efforts to engage in voter suppression and vote manipulation. And so honestly, every time I peruse the news sources and I see that those are not the top stories are near the top. There's a little bit of deflation going on there, kind of, you know, it's a debilitating sense. But the idea that Congress can go into uh, their recess yeah, yeah. when, you know, the pandemic and people's bills and rent are not going into recess, it, I think it just goes to show a couple of things, right? Not more than a couple of things, just a couple of things I'll highlight. Just how perhaps urgently needed is greater influence by everyday people to be able to have a better means of electing people that aren't so disconnected from the everyday experience. And that isn't just a question of turnout. That's also a question of genuine reform or transformation of election rules so that the people that are holding office don't get to cherry pick the people that vote for them through creative gerrymandering and district Mm -hmm. drawing and apportionment, right? There's a lot being asked of everyday people that I think just reflects some clear institutional failures, right? So asking the American people to buy stamps to save the post office, I think is very much an indictment of the inability of our branches of government or kind of our institutional leadership to provide the checks that many of us thought were present in the U.S. system, right? If it's it's incumbent upon us to save, to buy stamps, to save the USPS and hopefully maintain the integrity of an election in which mail-in ballots are gonna be more important than ever, then, I don't know, it seems like we need to really go back to the books and think about new ways of governance. Similarly, if we're asking people to just turn out in droves, given some of the significant challenges to turn out that are unequally felt across populations, and not dealing with the question of apportionment and uh, gerrymandering and partisan-drawn district lines, right? We're kind of asking people to fight a battle for which there's a very limited or pyrrhic victory. If we are asking employers to simply show mercy and not providing actual infrastructural support to the people that have been laid off or furloughed or had their pay reduced, then again, we're kind of, you know, saying that there's this piecemeal solution to a much wider problem. And I think what we're seeing across the board is people that are so fed up and so dissatisfied with those piecemeal solutions. And that can carry any different type of outlet. I can imagine the varied range of emotional responses that that carries, right. that, that engenders within people. And those emotional responses have very different kind of outlets, for the type of behavior they choose or choose not to engage in. But I know across the board, even hearing some of the key messages in the Democratic Convention, there's a lot of reliance on hope. And I understand that, thinking about emotions as it relates to marginalized groups like African-Americans, hope is that reserve that you have when you feel so resigned 
about the lack of progress when you feel so disillusioned by the system that you can't even summon the requisite anger, that you can't even be indignant because you're so defeated. And so if people across political aisle are asking us to be hopeful in this time, I think there's value in having that hope, but we need a genuine, credible object of that hope. And I think so many people across the country are really doubtful about whether that system as it's currently operating can give them a reason to be hopeful. And so when we look at the different slate of candidates that are providing these major primary challenges or upending some of the more entrenched and long-serving members of office, both at the national and state level, and of course this goes back to 2018 where we saw some major upending, right, of power brokers, I think that represents, that taps into a small semblance of people saying, you know, enough is enough from the part of the status quo, right? And I think it's really interesting to consider the means by which people have, or the means at people's disposal to act on that change. Because for everyone that can support an upstart in a primary for potential upset of a longstanding member of Congress or their state legislature, Right? There's plenty more people that don't have that option for whom their option is between the same set of people or not participating at all. And so we can consider what it means even for the health of our democracy when many people don't even have viable contrasting options from which to choose when they do choose to make their voice heard through voting. To speak to that convention point you're bringing up, the specific here I think illustrates a point you're making is John Kasich is saying, as the former Republican governor of Ohio, he's nodding to a particular audience saying that Joe Biden will not make a pivot to the left. Just let me reassure you, he will not pivot to the left in policy. He will not bring about structural change, folks. And you hear that message. We don't hear anything from Julian Castro about police reform or I mean, to the extent that he had structural reconfiguration of law enforcement in this country, Julian Castro. So, I mean, I think that's one example, as well as many other speaking slots in the Democratic Convention. Absolutely. And I think the absence of Julian Castro in any significant manner from the DNC this week, I think, struck a meaningful chord with a number of viewers watching not just because of the communities for which Julian Castro is descriptively representative, but also because of the ways in which he was willing to poke holes in some of the party's attempts at building unity and being agitant, right? To try to push the party in a more transformative direction than many of its major stakeholders are willing to go. We've typically seen efforts to bring about those adjutants under the tent or the umbrella at the party's national convention to say not only should we all be unified behind the candidate, but yes, we are going to additionally nod to those that don't feel as though this more modern approach is the best way. And we want to give you at least some kind of signaling that you won't be completely absent from the table of decision making. So we can see how much that's embodied in Bernie Sanders' strong remarks during night one, 
right? Where right. he's tasked with primarily speaking to his impassioned voter base, a voter base that's very likely to not be satisfied with Joe Biden or to not feel a great deal of enthusiasm for Joe Biden. You hear Bernie Sanders making a very explicit and clear crystal clear case to those folks for why the stakes are urgent enough that they need to coalesce around this moderate candidate, even yes. while acknowledging that he is far from their ideal point. He, had, he, so, he did some code switching for sure. Absolutely, right? And so I would imagine Julian Castro playing the exact same role as a potential adjutant, you know, flying the ointment, trying to push the party who may not have had his views borne out by the eventual winner of the Democratic nomination, but can still provide that vital messaging to that subset of voters that don't necessarily see themselves or their policy demands fully championed by or embodied within the Biden-Harris ticket. And so we can think about the intersection of the politics with the intersection of race and representation and identity. Why Bernie Sanders gets, and fully deserving, gets a choice slot to speak to his constituency and why Juan Castro has virtually no presence in the Democratic Convention, even in that session of the kind of contenders for the Democratic nomination, having their kind of group chat. I thought that was a very effective or potentially effective conversation to be had, but it made Castro's absence even, even more glaringly obvious. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the Biden-Harris ticket. It's a complicated relationship for Black people. So I, we've got the, the she, the people. I've been following them. They're a very sophisticated, uh, tactical, strategical group, women of color that have been involved for the this whole election cycle. I'm not sure before the K-Hive, as I, I've seen on Twitter and others. Then we go from that very upbeat reception of the Biden-Harris ticket to, in the New York Times, there was a piece, an attorney practicing in Boston, her name's Alexandra Warren, she in that New York Times piece was quoted as, she said, I don't feel honestly a sense of representation because I know representation has never won a revolution. Representation has never freed anybody from jail. Representation has never ended structural inequalities. Representation has never been able to fix structural violence, end of quote. And that's speaking to your point about the heavy lift of the party platform, the party convention, and now what this Biden ticket poses, the the choices in the American body politic. Absolutely, and I think you spoke to this as we were discussing the show notes as well. I think the wide range of responses within just the black community to Kamala Harris's selection really does show why there are a number of people that were vocally opposing Joe Biden's claim that the African-American community isn't ideologically diverse. While vote choice might not be diverse amongst African-Americans, there's certainly a huge amount of ideological diversity. And you see that in the wide range of responses from outright enthusiasm to outright sense of dejectedness to all of those nuanced and mixed and ambivalent feelings in between. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that the quote you shared from the woman, the lawyer, New York Times, he's 
is very resonant with how many people feel about that tension between symbolic or descriptive representation and substantive advancement of a group's needs and interests. And so I've mentioned descriptive representation a few times before, and as you define that, that simply means when the person in that position of institutional power shares a salient social identity characteristic with any members of the voting bloc. So every person that's in higher office is descriptively representative of someone. When we look at the numbers, right, the people that have disproportionately by far the most descriptive representation, right, are older white men, because that is what the vast majority of office holders are. So someone like Kamala Harris is going to be potentially descriptively representative of African-Americans, Indian-Americans, immigrants, women. women, right, down the line, right? Wow, so you can think about wow. all the different ways. Right. And so no there's always space for celebration of those symbols. And there's plenty of people that have done work to think through what are the gains and potential losses that arrived by having descriptively representative people in office. So what are the things that we know from research? And I'll take a bit of time to shout out a few of the folks people should really yes. look into yes. uh, to think especially about Kamala Harris's roles across gender and race and immigration status. Typically, the people that are underrepresented in politics that do have that descriptive representation do feel at least a short-term boost in their sense of political influence or agency. They feel more comfortable reaching out to government officials within that administration. So that might not apply so much when we're talking about descriptive representation in the White House. But when we look at you know, mayors and city council members and even state officials, having a person from your racial group or from your gender might make you more likely to contact that government because you think there's gonna be more of a chance of responsiveness, right? And there's these kind of spillover effects where we've seen people step up their participation across a variety of domains of politics because mm -hmm. they just feel more confident that their input is gonna matter now. But there's right. also evidence that those effects fade after maybe the first or second administration of those descriptively representative officials. Wow. We also know that those descriptive representative officials do tend to feel that they do have a special responsibility or burden that they carry, that they certainly see themselves as representative of all their constituents, but do feel that special sense of responsibility or pressure, right? And so they do try to show the ways in which they're trying to be responsive to those particular demands that they have an appreciation the community feels those demands haven't been given their full weight before. Uh, but at the same time, their position and power can also be used as a cudgel to perhaps delegitimize the claims from that constituency that there are particular vulnerabilities that they face, right? So we can think about that very intellectually lazy, but often stated argument, right? Well, you've got, you've had a black president now, right? So what do you mean this country's dealing with racism, right? Conveniently forgetting that to have one you know, non-white president out of the entirety of history might do more to counteract your claims than you might right. suspect, right? right. But so, so there's that tension there. And so what really makes that tension, I think, palpable is a couple of things. One, this sense for many others, and I think this is what is represented in that uh, law student's quote, right? Like representation is great, that symbolic breaking of that ceiling or that barrier. But how is that going to bring us any closer to our goals of liberation, right? That one person in power isn't going to level the economic playing field. It's not going to eradicate those jarring discrepancies in education. It's not going to 
end or strike down mass incarceration. I think of a tweet by Kianka Yamada Taylor that says something very similar, right? Like right. essentially she made the point, many of us are tired of celebrating those symbolic victories. We're tired of celebrating the newest milestone representation. What we're fighting for, what we're clamoring for goes much deeper than having that descriptive representation. At what point are we gonna say enough is enough here and demand much more than that person in position of power. And so I think we see that playing out and we think about these kinds of cleavages in black people's responses to Kamala Harris. We have to think about those cleavages along lines of age and religion and gender. region and gender and social status, right? And all of that matters, right? And so it's not to say that the value that she brings to people as a woman as Black, as South Asian, as child of immigrants, has not to say that that doesn't matter meaningfully to people, even some of the very people that would push back and say, but we want more, we need more. People that want to interrogate her record as Attorney General and hold space for questioning or skepticism about how effectively she'll be responsive to the urgent calls right? Not just for reform of our criminal justice system, but for transformation of our criminal justice system. They look at her record as attorney general paired with Biden's record and his kind of instrumental role in the crime bill in 94. And they say, in the midst of this, you know, historically large movement for racial justice in the criminal justice system, what does it say that the party ostensibly representing the Democrats, not the party, but the people that are the vanguards of the party are kind of agents of the carceral state in various ways. And that's one segment. There are many other people that are incredibly hopeful and enthusiastic and optimistic about Kamala Harris. Many of them will point not only to the identities she carries, but her record of voting in the Senate and the ways in which she still had some markers of progressiveness, even in her record as attorney general. And so all of these are valid ideas and none of them I think should be stifled by continuing to perpetuate this idea that Black people are a unified ideological bloc. Again, they might be a unified voting bloc, and that speaks much more to the lack of viable options to the group as opposed to you know, firm agreement on the issues. But I think for us to just really embrace that diversity of views allows us to, I think, be more critical and holding accountable public officials, be they descriptively representative or not, right? about whether they are advancing the specific and unique and distinct demands of the group, or if they are sidelining and marginalizing those demands. Excellent. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. For the full hour, my guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix. And we're talking about the Biden-Harris ticket discussion a little bit or hearing the seminar, as it were, on the Democratic Convention. So the ongoing voter suppression. We're going to see increasingly more sophisticated measures that are going to undermine it. We, we've already seen this man-made problem made out of the, the post office. And we're seeing now, like what you talk about in the anger gap, currently the Freedom Works, a conservative Republican entity is stoking doubt amongst black voters. Do you want to talk about how that fits into your discussion of that undermining 
the interest in participating in the electoral process with those kinds of measures, disorienting and misrepresenting and, and all that. Sure. So when we think about people's decisions to participate in politics from a political science perspective, we start with a very basic econometric idea of the benefits of participation have to outweigh the costs. And so we know that the benefits can be really broadly defined. You don't necessarily need to be conceiving of any personal or tangible benefit you get to your participation or get from your participation. On the contrary, right, you can feel that sense of moral or civic obligation being fulfilled, right? Or you can feel a sense of obligation to people that preceded you, generations that preceded you, that, you know, did not have the ability to cast a vote as freely as you do. And so all those can be benefits, but the costs are quite observable and tangible for and ramped many up now people. In Absolutely, the pandemic. Right? right? And so let's think about those costs and how they've been distributed unevenly even before the era of COVID, right? We know from scientific studies that people of color tend to stay in line longer than white people to cast their ballot. Right. And what does that reflect? You know, very intentional decisions by people to place polling locations strategically and to place vote machines strategically so that it's easier for some people to cast votes than others or some neighborhoods, some precincts to cast votes than others. Right. We know that the onset of voter ID laws has made it disproportionately more difficult for black, Latinx and younger people to vote. And how is that possible? There's been a wide set of scholarship that looks to just how effective the voting ID laws that have been passed around the country have been at increasing the barrier to vote amongst Black and Latinx and younger voters, all of whom are more likely to vote Democratic. And so while there's some mixed effects on how tangible those additional barriers or higher barriers are, we can also have a reasonable presumption that people that are facing those higher kind of requirements to vote, can feel less influence, can feel less agentic, right? And so there's that psychic effect, feeling a little less motivated to vote. So, and like we were talking about before, there's that sense of, will my vote really matter? Will I be able to vote for a regime that is gonna be any more responsive to my interests than any other regime, right? So we have to reckon with that particular sense of agency or influence. And one of the things I try to grapple with in my book is how much that sense of agency about how much I'm able to influence outcomes is shaped by people's experiences around race. And so that we see Black and Latinx and Asian American folks expressing less efficacy or less of a sense of political influence when I ask them to think specifically about their racial group compared to white Americans. In contrast, white Americans, when I ask them to think about specifically their influence as a racial group, in contrast to just as, you know, members of their community or their neighborhood, they're expressing more of a sense of influence, right? So those dividing lines in people's perceptions of their capacity, right? Those really matter here. And so in an era of COVID, we have this additional challenge of people not feeling the same set of safety and comfort to stand in those polling places. And so it really matters, A, those years-long decisions to systematically remove voting machines and close down polling places in particular neighborhoods, because that means it's going to be more people potentially in line at those polling places. And of course, that means more of a risk 
more of a challenge of social distancing, more of a hesitation to go to the polling place. On top of that, you've got these various sets of complex and not so complex shenanigans to make it difficult for people to have trust in their mail-in ballot being counted and in mailing ballots that are submitted being counted and being going, you know, going towards the vote total. So again, we have to think about not just the tangible and observable effects of those kinds of efforts. We have to think about the impact that has on people's calculations of whether the benefits of voting exceed the cost. We are dramatically increasing people's perception of the cost without increasing their perception of the benefit. And so that has a demobilizing effect, which is also akin to vote suppression. And so it's really vital that we hear more from government officials, again, on both sides of the aisle, because this should not be a partisan issue. Ensuring the integrity of the election should be one of the basic fundamental obligations of all elected officials. And if it is not, how can we have any faith that this set of elected officials or even the kind of system of governance that continues to put this set of elected officials in place can be the upholder of the democratic values that we're all believed are so fundamentally important to distinguish America as a country. So I know I'm getting very big picture and very normative right. here, but it's very critical, I think, for us to not sugarcoat, right, or not uh, minimize what is at stake here. And for me to speak to this, I'm acknowledging that oftentimes my research and my focus as someone that focuses on the politics of marginalized groups that democracy has, on maybe a smaller scale, largely been contested for these sets of folks. And so what we're seeing is that sense of legitimacy, that sense of credibility being contested or questioned at a larger scale than I think many people could have imagined. And I think, again, just like COVID, this has laid bare the unsustainability of these lingering inequities. In this case, it's not just an inequity of resources, right? But it's an equity of who feels as though their voice matters within politics. So as we draw down our time, I want to make our closing topic, just thinking of the image, because you're talking about the movement, the Black Lives Matter, the image of John Lewis, the last couple days of his life, he's looking down at the Black Lives Matter Plaza. It's such a rich image. Can we look at, and you may think this is one of those sort of pageant moments that don't have the structural impact that is so necessary to turn and reform things fundamentally. But I, I want to go to how intentional John Lewis's being remembered was at his funeral. And on the day uh, because we're talking about voting rights and the Black Lives Matter movement and the skin in the game here. The day of his funeral was the day the New York Times published his last op-ed piece. And it's exhorting people to be involved. So what were your reflections on what took place at the funeral? I had the opportunity to ask Rick Hassan a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, about John Lewis knowing what the long game was about voting rights. And we're looking at that now together here. So if you could reflect on any of those aspects of his final chapters. 
Yeah, so I think in reflecting on his final set of words to us and the actions he implored us to take, one thing that's clear is that symbols do indeed matter. So I'm certainly moved, like I'm sure many others, that John Lewis was moved, profoundly so, to ensure that he saw that Black Lives Matter placard along Washington, D.C., and so I think it's really important for me to be able to add to the earlier conversation. It's important for us to be able to question that tension potentially between symbols and substance while not in any way thumbing our nose at the power, the transformative power potentially of those symbols and how they can move people. I mean, as a scholar that tries to think about how emotions move people across race, I do take important stock in those symbols. I think the other thing that really strikes me or another thing that strikes me from his final words to us is when he says that Emmett Till was his George Floyd. Yes. And it made me think about a couple of things related to youth. You know, John Lewis was young, right? When he started his long unsteady march, he was a kid. Yep. And so often these powerful movements are led by and or kind of sustained by young people, kids. And there's such a palpable role for our youth to play. And so often we see youth at the front lines of these movements to challenge systems from outside, in large part as a reflection of our unwillingness or inability to bring them into the fold within our traditional systems, right? Because you don't need to just simply be a voting age to be influential in politics, right? For your voice to be heard. And I've been thinking a lot about, grappling a lot with the many ways in which we marginalize youth voices, even as those voices are the ones that are most urgent, the ones that are bearing the brunt of our actions or our inactions, the ones that are most astutely and acutely able to articulate what the problems are and begin to sketch out a blueprint for really sufficiently addressing those problems. So I think about the power of youth and how John Lewis was a kid as a young man. I don't say kid pejoratively, right? No, I even no, have no. to think about the way in which we can use terms describing young people in a way that's so loaded, right, with belittling or marginalizing means. But I mean kid is in kids have the power to change the world. Kids, teens, youth, young men, grown men, old men, right? Throughout his life, he fought, he fought, he fought, he fought. But I think about when he says Emmett Till was my George Floyd, how many kids have also died at the hands of our system and the entrenched ways in which our system perpetuates racial violence. So to think about Emmett Till, whose death was such a critical spark for the civil rights movement, yes. to think about the death of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, whose death was the spark for the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. And to think about the death of other kids and young people throughout even the years since Trayvon Martin was killed, Tamir Rice and Michael Brown and all kinds of young people, Ayanna Stanley Jones. And you and I have talked about children before and how we can think about the state of our children, particularly the state of children that are at the intersection of various marginalized identities, how that's a good kind of indicator of where we are at as a society. Can these kids just be kids? Do they have the freedom to just 
be children and are we not asking them to be resilient in the face of all these just overwhelming challenges? Are we just allowing them to play and learn and grow and develop and come into their own? You know, we've pretty much demanded and burdened an entire generation of young people to be much more than young people. Are they capable of doing it? For sure, right? We can think about the people leading these efforts against gun violence, the people leading efforts for climate change and for environmental justice, the people even leading movements for abolition. How these are young people. In an ideal world, they could just be kids, right? But we've kind of given them this burden, this charge, often through our inaction, of being much more of being leaders, of being activists, of putting themselves on the front line. I'm struck that the footage of George Floyd, which sparks this movement, was recorded by a teenager. And and they're trying to intervene as well. Absolutely. But they were pushed back by the other cops that were on the scene. Yeah, so we can think about our kids literally being on the front lines of these movements, both kind of the mass movements and on the front lines of these interactions between everyday people in the state. The organizational infrastructure. Absolutely. And so I think about how many of them are looking at this landscape. How often can they feel hope versus despair? So when I read John Lewis's last words, I think about how he had to look upon that landscape as a a young man, very young man, a youth in his own right, and think about that tension between hope and despair, right? Think about that tension between indignation and kind of resignation, and how he kept pushing and pressing and pressing to make that good trouble. And how I think of his words, not only as an admonishment for many of us, but as a celebration of the young people that are leading the way, even when we try to deny them the tools of leadership, they find and craft their own tools and they make their own way. And I think if we can take a step back and humble ourselves and allow more young people to be our kind of navigating stars, uh, then maybe we can blaze a path towards the kind of vision that John Lewis must have had for himself as a young man, seeing things as they were and imagining things to be much better. Uh, so I, all I can ask is that each of us takes time to not sugarcoat it, not look at a everything through rose-colored glasses, but see things as they are, but also have the courage and have almost that childlike ability to imagine things being better. On that note, Davin, I thank you so very much for your time talking with us today on the program. No, it's a pleasure. I think this is a really good conversation. Thank you. My guest was Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor and author of an important book, The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes emotion in politics. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, Adam Smyer will talk about his very new book entitled, You Can Keep That to Yourself, a comprehensive list of what not to say to black people for well-intentioned people of pallor. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Mask up, take the census, and confirm your voter registration. 